Section 1 of The House Behind the Cedars This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White The House Behind the Cedars by Charles W. Chestnut Section 1 A Stranger from South Carolina Time touches all things with destroying hands, and if he seem now and then to bestow the bloom of youth, the sap of spring, it is but a brief mockery, to be surely and swiftly followed by the wrinkles of old age, the dry leaves and bare branches of winter. And yet there are places where time seems to linger lovingly long after youth has departed, and to which he seems loath to bring the evil day. Who has not known some even-tempered old man or woman who seemed to have drunk of the fountain of youth? Who has not seen somewhere an old town that, having long since ceased to grow, yet held its own without perceptible decline? Some such trite reflection as apposite to the subject as most random reflections are, passed through the mind of a young man who came out of the front door of the Patesville Hotel about nine o'clock one fine morning in spring, a few years after the Civil War, and started down Front Street toward the Market House. Arriving at the town late the previous evening, he had been driven up from the steamboat in a carriage, from which he had been able to distinguish only the shadowy outlines of the houses along the street, so that this morning walk was his first opportunity to see the town by daylight. He was dressed in a suit of linen duck, the day was warm, a Panama straw hat, and patent leather shoes. In appearance he was tall, dark, with straight black lustrous hair, and very clean-cut, high-bred features. When he paused by the clerk's desk on his way out to light his cigar, the day clerk, who had just come on duty, glanced at the register, and read the last entry. John Warwick. Clarence. South Carolina. One of the South Carolina big bugs, I reckon. Probably in cotton or turpentine. The gentleman from South Carolina, walking down the street, glanced about him with an eager look, in which curiosity and affection were mingled with a touch of bitterness. He saw little that was not familiar, or that he had not seen in his dreams a hundred times during the past ten years. There had been some changes, it is true, some melancholy changes, but scarcely anything by way of addition or improvement to counterbalance them. Here and there, blackened and dismantled walls marked the place where handsome buildings once had stood, for Sherman's march to the sea had left its mark upon the town. The stores were mostly of brick, two stories high, joining one another after the manner of cities. Some of the names on the signs were familiar. Others, including a number of Jewish names, were quite unknown to him. A two-minute's walk brought Warwick, the name he had registered under, and as we shall call him, to the market-house, the central feature of Patesville, from both the commercial and the picturesque points of view. Standing four-square in the heart of the town, at the intersection of the two main streets, a jog at each street corner left around the market-house, a little public square, which at this hour was well occupied by carts and wagons from the country 
and empty drays awaiting hire. Warwick was unable to perceive much change in the market-house. Perhaps the surface of the red brick, long unpainted, had scaled off a little more here and there. There might have been a slight accretion of the moss and lichen on the shingled roof, but the tall tower, with its four-faced clock, rose as majestically and uncompromisingly as though the land had never been subjugated. Was it so irreconcilable, Warwick wondered, as still to peal out the curfew bell, which at nine o'clock at night had clamorously warned all negroes, slave or free, that it was unlawful for them to be abroad after that hour, under penalty of imprisonment or whipping? Was the old constable, whose chief business it had been to ring the bell, still alive and exercising the functions of his office? And had age lessened or increased the number of times that obliging citizens performed this duty for him during his temporary absences in the company of convivial spirits? A few moments later, Warwick saw a colored policeman in the old constable's place. A stronger reminder than even the burned buildings that war had left its mark upon the old town, with which time had dealt so tenderly. The lower story of the market-house was open on all four of its sides to the public square. Warwick passed through one of the wide brick arches and traversed the building with a leisurely step. He looked in vain into the stalls for the butcher who had sold fresh meat twice a week on market days, and he felt a genuine thrill of pleasure when he recognized the red bandana turban of old Aunt Liddy, the ancient negro woman who had sold him gingerbread and fried fish and told him weird tales of witchcraft and conjuration in the old days when, as an idle boy, he had loafed about the market-house. He did not speak to her, however, or give her any sign of recognition. He threw a glance toward a certain corner where steps led to the town hall above. On this stairway he had once seen a manacled free negro shot while being taken upstairs for examination under a criminal charge. Warwick recalled vividly how the shot had rung out. He could see again the livid look of terror on the victim's face, the gathering crowd, the resulting confusion. The murderer, he recalled, had been tried and sentenced to imprisonment for life, but was pardoned by a merciful governor after serving a year of his sentence. As Warwick was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, he could not foresee that, thirty years later, even this would seem an excessive punishment for so slight a misdemeanor. Leaving the market-house, Warwick turned to the left, and kept on his course until he reached the next corner. After another turn to the right, a dozen paces brought him in front of a small, weather-beaten frame building, from which projected a wooden signboard bearing the inscription, Archibald Strait, Lawyer. He turned the knob, but the door was locked. Retracing his steps past a vacant lot, the young man entered a shop where a colored man was employed in varnishing a coffin, which stood on two trestles in the middle of the floor. Not at all impressed by the melancholy suggestiveness of his task, he was whistling a lively air with great gusto. Upon Warwick's entrance, this effusion came to a sudden end, and the coffin-maker assumed an air of professional gravity. "'Good morning, sir,' he said, lifting his cap politely. "'Good morning,' answered Warwick. "'Can you tell me anything about Judge Strait's office hours?' 
The old judge has been a little on regular since the war, sir, but it generally gets round about ten o'clock or so. He's been kind of feeble for the last few years, and I reckon, continued the undertaker solemnly, his glance unconsciously seeking a row of fine caskets standing against the wall. I reckon he'll soon be gone away of all the earth. Man that is born a woman hath but a short time to live, and is full of misery. He cometh up, and is cut down like a flower. The days of his life is three score and ten, and the old judge has lived more than that, sir, by five years, to say the least. Death, quoted Warwick, with whose mood the undertaker's remarks were in tune, is the penalty that all must pay for the crime of living. That's a fact, sir, that's a fact. So they must. So they must. And then all the dead has to be buried. And we does our share of it, sir. We does our share. We conducts the obsquies of the best white folks of the town, sir. Warwick left the undertaker's shop and retraced his steps until he had passed the lawyer's office, toward which he threw an affectionate glance. A few rods farther led him past the old black Presbyterian church, with its square tower, embowered in a stately grove, past the Catholic church, with its many crosses and a painted wooden figure of St. James in a recess beneath the gable, and past the old Jefferson house, once the leading hotel of the town, in front of which political meetings had been held and political speeches made, and political hard-cider drunk in the days of Tippecanoe and Tyler too. The street down which Warwick had come intersected Front Street at a sharp angle in front of the old hotel, forming a sort of flat-iron block at the junction, known as Liberty Point, perhaps because slave auctions were sometimes held there in the good old days. Just before Warwick reached Liberty Point, a young woman came down Front Street from the direction of the market house. When their paths converged, Warwick kept on down Front Street behind her, it having been already his intention to walk in this direction. Warwick's first glance had revealed the fact that the young woman was strikingly handsome, with a stately beauty seldom encountered. As he walked along behind her at a measured distance, he could not help noting the details that made up this pleasing impression, for his mind was singularly alive to beauty, in whatever embodiment. The girl's figure, he perceived, was admirably proportioned. She was evidently at the period when the angles of childhood were rounding into the promising curves of adolescence. Her abundant hair, of a dark and glossy brown, was neatly plaited and coiled above an ivory column that rose straight from a pair of gently sloping shoulders, clearly outlined beneath the light muslin frock that covered them. He could see that she was tastefully, though not richly, dressed, and that she walked with an elastic step that revealed a light heart and the vigor of perfect health. Her face, of course, he could not analyze, since he had caught only the one brief but convincing glimpse of it. The young woman kept on down Front Street, Warwick maintaining his distance a few rods behind her. They passed a factory, a warehouse or two, and then, leaving the brick pavement, walked along on Mother Earth under a leafy arcade of spreading oaks and elms. Their way led now through a residential portion of the town, which, as they advanced, gradually declined from staid respectability to poverty, open and unabashed. 
Warwick observed, as they passed through the respectable quarter, that few people who met the girl greeted her, and that some others whom she passed at gates or doorways gave her no sign of recognition, from which he inferred that she was possibly a visitor in the town and not well acquainted. Their walk had continued not more than ten minutes when they crossed a creek by a wooden bridge and came to a row of mean houses standing flush with the street. At the door of one, an old black woman had stopped to lift a large basket, piled high with laundered clothes. The girl, as she passed, seized one end of the basket and helped the old woman to raise it to her head, where it rested solidly on the cushion of her headkerchief. During this interlude, Warwick, though he had slackened his pace measurably, had so nearly closed the gap between himself and them as to hear the old woman say, with the dulcet negro intonation, "'Tank it, honey. The law gon' bless you, show. You was allers a good gal, and the Lord love everybody what helped the poor old nigger. You gonna have good luck all your bone days.' "'I hope you're a true prophet, Aunt Zilphy,' laughed the girl in response. The sound of her voice gave Warwick a thrill. It was soft and sweet and clear, quite in harmony with her appearance. That it had a faint suggestiveness of the old woman's accent he hardly noticed, for the current southern speech, including his own, was rarely without a touch of it. The corruption of the white people's speech was one element, only one, of the negro's unconscious revenge for his own debasement. The houses they passed now grew scattering, and the quarter of the town more neglected. Warwick felt himself wondering where the girl might be going in a neighborhood so uninviting. When she stopped to pull a half-naked negro child out of a mud-hole and set him upon his feet, he thought she might be some young lady from the upper part of the town, bound on some errand of mercy, or going, perhaps, to visit an old servant, or look for a new one. Once she threw a backward glance at Warwick, thus enabling him to catch a second glimpse of a singularly pretty face. Perhaps the young woman found his presence in the neighborhood as unaccountable as he had deemed hers. For finding his glance fixed upon her, she quickened her pace with an air of startled timidity. A woman with such a figure, thought Warwick, ought to be able to face the world with the confidence of Phryne confronting her judges. By this time Warwick was conscious that something more than mere grace or beauty had attracted him with increasing force toward this young woman. A suggestion, at first faint and elusive, of something familiar had grown stronger when he heard her voice, and became more and more pronounced with each rod of their advance. And when she stopped finally before a gate, and, opening it, went into a yard shut off from the street by a row of dwarf cedars, Warwick had already discounted in some measure the surprise he would have felt at seeing her enter there had he not walked down Front Street behind her. There was still sufficient unexpectedness about the act, however, to give him a decided thrill of pleasure. "'It must be Rena,' he murmured. "'Who could have dreamed that she would blossom out like that? It must surely be Rena.' He walked slowly past the gate and peered through a narrow gap in the cedar hedge. The girl was moving along a sanded walk toward a gray, unpainted house with a steep roof broken by dormer windows. The trace of timidity he had observed in her had given place to the more assured bearing of one who was upon his own ground. 
the garden walks were bordered by long rows of jonquils pinks and carnations enclosing clumps of fragrant shrubs lilies and roses already in bloom toward the middle of the garden stood two fine magnolia trees with heavy dark green glistening leaves while nearer the house two mighty elms shaded a wide piazza at one end of which a honeysuckle vine and at the other a virginia creeper running over a wooden lattice furnished additional shade and seclusion on dark or wintry days the aspect of this garden must have been extremely sombre and depressing and it might well have seemed a fit place to hide some guilty or disgraceful secret but on the bright morning when warwick stood looking through the cedars it seemed with its green frame and canopy and its bright carpet of flowers an ideal retreat from the fierce sunshine and the sultry heat of the approaching summer the girl stooped to pluck a rose and as she bent over it her profile was clearly outlined she held the flower to her face with a long-drawn inhalation then went up the steps crossed the piazza opened the door without knocking and entered the house with the air of one thoroughly at home yes said the young man to himself it's rena sure enough the house stood on a corner around which the cedar hedge turned continuing along the side of the garden until it reached the line of the front of the house the piazza to a rear wing at right angles to the front of the house was open to inspection from the side street which to judge from its deserted look seemed to be but little used turning into this street and walking leisurely past the back yard which was only slightly screened from the street by a china tree warwick perceived the young woman standing on the piazza facing an elderly woman who sat in a large rocking chair plying a pair of knitting needles on a half-finished stocking warwick's walk led him within three feet of the side gate which he felt an almost irresistible impulse to enter every detail of the house and garden was familiar a thousand cords of memory and affection drew him thither but a stronger counter-motive prevailed with a great effort he restrained himself and after a momentary pause walked slowly on past the house with a backward glance which he turned away when he saw that it was observed warwick's attention had been so fully absorbed by the house behind the cedars and the women there that he had scarcely noticed on the other side of the neglected by-street two men working by a large open window in a low rude building with a clapboard roof directly opposite the back piazza occupied by the two women both the men were busily engaged in shaping barrel staves each wielding a sharp-edged drawing-knife on a piece of seasoned oak clasped tightly in a wooden vice i just wonder who that man is and what he's doing on this street observed the younger of the two with a suspicious air he had noticed the gentleman's involuntary pause and his interest in the opposite house and had stopped work for a moment to watch the stranger as he went on down the street never mind about that man said the elder one you tend to your work and finish that bell stave you spends entirely too much of your time stretching your neck at the other people and you needn't stub yourself about them folks cross the street but ain't your kin and you're wasting your time bothering your mind with em or with folks what comes on the street on account of em look sharp now boy or you'll get that stave trimmed too much 
the younger man resumed his work but still found time to throw a slanting glance out of the window the gentleman he perceived stood for a moment on the rotting bridge across the old canal and then walked slowly ahead until he turned to the right into back street a few rods farther on end of section one recording by james k white chula vista